Hi, all. I'm Matt Arnold. Welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a series of podcasts on healthcare and life sciences brought to you by Clarivate. Social determinants of health are increasingly a topic of focus for policymakers, patient advocates, and the healthcare industries. They're looking beyond clinical environments for factors that can contribute to unhealth, whether that's lack of health insurance or living in a so-called food desert without access to fresh produce and other healthy foods. Here in the US, we see enormous disparities in health outcomes and access to care as a result of these factors. For example, in September, the Washington Post reported that one in 1,300 white Americans had died of COVID-19, while among Black Americans who continue to face systemic racism in many avenues of life, including healthcare, that number was one in 480. One in 390 Hispanic Americans had died of COVID-19, as had one in 240 Native Americans. Today, I am joined by Dr. Kenton Johnston, a health economist who teaches at St. Louis University's College for Public Health and Social Justice. Dr. Johnston has done a lot of research on barriers to healthcare impacting racial and ethnic minorities in America and on Medicare. Dr. Johnston, thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure to be here, Matthew. Can I call you Kenton? Yes, you can call me. <laughs> All right, Kenton. Dr. Johnson sounds uh, so formal. Yeah. Um, what what do what do social determinants? You're based in St. Louis. What yeah. do social determinants of health look like in in St. Louis? That's a great question. Um, I think it's important to be really concrete and specific when we talk about things like social determinants of health, um, health disparities, health inequities, um, because these terms are often thrown around in ways that are very abstract. And um, in order to really understand them, it's important to be concrete. And so one way of being concrete is talking about geography. And a lot of social determinants of health are very much tied to geography and to in the city of St. Louis to local geography. So literally in the city, there is um, what's often called the Del Mar Divide. So Del Mar is a, is a street in St. Louis that runs east to west and divides North St. Louis from um, South St. Louis. And north of Del Mar, north of the Del Mar Divide um, is very racially segregated and also segregated by socioeconomic status. And so in, in North St. Louis, there are... Um, you know, much larger proportion of the population would be Black or African American. Um, you, you immediately notice things like um, the housing is, um, you, you know, there's a, a lot of undeveloped housing, a lot of housing that hasn't been, hasn't been kept up. And a lot of this goes back, if you really want to understand it, to, um, to the practice of redlining, where um, Black or African American homeowners were kept out of certain areas of St. Louis. And so when, when we use terms like structural racism or structural inequities, there's actually literal, like a literal concrete um, line in St. Louis that's, that's associated with those. Um, you know, access to grocery stores is, is, not, is not good in North St. Louis. Access to healthcare is not good. Um, you know, it's, it's a pretty marked difference when you um, drive around in North St. Louis, you'll notice it right away in terms of you don't see nice, shiny, new outpatient um, 
health facilities or hospitals, for example. The other um, geographic um, social determinant of health in St. Louis would be east-west. And so as you, you know, as you move west in St. Louis, away from the Mississippi River, away from Illinois, and away from East St. Louis, it gets wealthier and wealthier and whiter and whiter. And again, this is um, a legacy of the practice of redlining and um, the practice, you know, um, when, after the 1950s, when people kind of fled to the suburbs. The reason I'm bringing it up is when it comes to access to healthcare, you know, the, the access that you're going to get in um, what's called the county in, in the St. Louis area, West County is, is very different. You know, you can just, you can just see it in the buildings, the hospital buildings, the outpatient facility buildings. And so um, St. Louis is kind of a microcosm of what goes on in a lot of American cities. This isn't unique just to St. Louis. Um, and so things like access to high quality healthcare are, you know, geographically determined based on um, um, race and ethnicity based on, you know, some historic structural structural practices that led to racial segregation and then also by socioeconomic status because as people kind of fled to the suburbs or as redlining occurred and people were segregated in these different areas you know home values and economic value of of the area in north st louis went way down and they're still they're still much you know much lower than if you go south of del mar or um, to west st louis and so really it's it's geography is very important and it it is a determinant of health in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. So so there's literally uh, far fewer healthcare facilities in poor neighborhoods and black neighborhoods in St. Louis. And on top of that, um, lower income people and disproportionately black people uh, have have uh, are, are more likely to be uh, uninsured or underinsured right so there's a there's a weave of of problems here um people can't yeah. access care financially and they can't access care physically yeah and you know that there's going to be um in poor areas there'll be things like federally qualified health centers um you know which is it's great that they're serving um a poor population. However, they kind of, you know, they're, they're doing a, a good, a good job, but it's pretty evident when you, you know, enter these kind of facilities and compare them to what people are getting in the richer area, whiter areas in West of St. Louis, there's a pretty big difference in, you know, one, one facility is state of the arts, very inviting and welcoming versus the other facility. It's, you know, it's probably understaffed, um, under-resourced, doesn't have the same resources as richer areas. And then in, in middle of St. Louis, you know, the two universities, St. Louis University where I'm at, and then um, Washington University in St. Louis, both are affiliated with large hospital systems that provide a lot of, a lot of charity care um, in particular and um, provide a lot of care to Medicaid patients um, in particular, which, you know, some 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 doctors won't accept Medicaid and or limit their patient panels because the payment rates to doctors and hospitals are so low. And if you're a doctor, you got to stay in business. Um, and you might not be able to do that if you if you serve 
you know, a, a high proportion of, of Medicaid patients. Mm -hmm. So not only does the healthcare system adversely impact some patients, but it adversely impacts the, uh, the healthcare professionals and the provider institutions that uh, care for those adversely impacted populations. Yeah. It's kind of a medical double jeopardy. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's, you know, it's, it, it's unfortunate because we want um, doctors and hospitals to be part of a safety net that serve the most vulnerable patients. Um, and it, it, it does end up impacting them in some ways negatively. And, and because you look at things just like um, hospital star ratings, you know, uh, Medicare CMS provides these star ratings of hospitals everywhere. Well, if you just look up the hospital in the hospitals in the city of St. Louis that serve more um, socially at risk patients, their star ratings are a lot lower than if you go west to um, out to the county and look at the star ratings of those hospitals. And there's always this argument from the hospital executives. Well, we serve a sicker, more at risk population. And so we're going to have poor outcomes, which is, which is partially true. And then the counter argument is, well, maybe um, the care that you're providing isn't as good to these lower income, more vulnerable populations than the care you're providing in the county. And there's evidence that suggests both of these things are true. They're not sure. mutually exclusive. So there's no way to, no way to know how much of one and how much of the other, but. Well, that's, <laughs> that is part of the job of economists um, using, you know, appropriate methods to try to try to what economists would say decompose or identify um, how much is due to actual lower quality of care versus versus how much is due to um, due to the risk of patients. And, you know, one way of doing this is um, by looking at taking a, um, a single hospital and looking at the care that hospital provides to different types of patients. Um, versus comparing that hospital to another hospital. I won't, you know, get into details on these methods, but, um, but there, there are ways of doing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Taking a step back. Um, it, it's, it's, it's easy to miss that we're, we're sort of in the middle of a, uh, a still in the middle of a revolution in this country and, in, in uh, how we, uh, provide care and how we cover, uh, people, the, the Affordable Care Act was passed on, only, what, 11 years ago. Um, and uh, so for the past 10 years, the, the conversation in, in policy is focused on questions of access to care, expanding insurance coverage. Um, but uh, the, these disparate outcomes persist. Why, why is that? Why, why do you think we've seen so little progress in, in the past decade? Well, I mean, the, the Affordable Care Act did successfully um, expand insurance in the sense that there are more people covered by health insurance in the U.S. now than there were before. And that's largely through the expansion of Medicaid and then also through enabling um, people to purchase insurance on the health exchanges. But, you know, there are still 12 states that have not expanded Medicaid. Um, mm -hmm. Missouri voters actually voted to expand Medicaid, but the legislature has still not funded it. So it's 
it's dragging out in the courts. It's going to happen eventually, but it's it's being drug out in the courts. Um, the big, you know, the big states that haven't expanded Medicaid in populations are Texas, Florida, and then Georgia and North Carolina as well. And so that, you know, there's a lot of people in those states um, who would be eligible under the expansion for Medicaid who are not getting Medicaid. So, it, I mean, it's Medicaid insurance is one way of expanding insurance and it's better than nothing. However, one thing I always try to remind people is that access to health insurance is not the same thing as access to health care. So that, you know, the, the first question is, okay, do I have insurance to access care? Now the, the second question is, okay, can I actually access care with this insurance policy that I have? And when it comes to Medicaid, the Medicaid has the lowest payment rates to doctors and hospitals. Um, it's unlikely that most doctors would stay in business if all they did was serve Medicaid patients. And so some doctors will not take Medicaid patients at all because the payment rates are so low. Um, for example, it's very hard to get in to see a psychiatrist with Medicaid insurance. Mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. You know, I've heard from psychiatrists about the, that the payment rates are extremely low in Missouri under Medicaid. Um, and, you know, and then they're also dealing with patients who have some of the most complex visits. Um, right. And so doctors have to think about, you know, most doctors, it's not a yes or no, it's how much. So like what percent of my patient panel can I afford um, to, to have as, as Medicare or Medicaid mm -hmm. enrollees? And then how am I going to balance that out with the private insurance and Medicare in order to, to stay in business? Or if you're, you know, a clinic that wants to focus on serving um, low income and uninsured populations. Um, I was on the board of one of those clinics when I used to live in Tennessee. And so their way of affording that is also raising money from private donors in order to offset the cost of delivering care to the uninsured and to, and to Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So it's almost a, a charity. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Yeah. And, and, and they're being effectively penalized for, for treating un, uninsured and underinsured people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, I mean, Medicare, Medicaid pays the worst Medicare pays. Okay. And private insurance pays the best. Um, there's an argument with economists about whether, you know, cost shifting is occurring or not. Economists can argue about that. Um, any practice manager will tell you though, they definitely pay attention to their caseload under different payers in order to make their practice finances work. Mm -hmm. For any ex-US listeners, um, the, the shorthand historically has been that Medicare is for older folks um, for over 65s and Medicaid is for uh, people who can't work because of a disability or people who are extremely poor, right? Yeah. But that's, that's expanded over the years somewhat. Yeah, it's expanded over the years. Um, and in particular, under the Affordable Care Act, the idea was that Medicaid would cover everybody up to um, 133% of the federal poverty level. So just mm -hmm. above the poverty line. Um, but the poverty line is very low. 
Oh yeah, the poverty line. You're definitely in poverty if you're at the poverty line. I mean, you're not going to limbo under that, even if you're at a hundred percent or or two hundred percent. Yeah, and the, and so these states that haven't expanded at you know, basically in a in a lot of the states that haven't expanded it, if you're not a disabled individual, um, a pregnant woman, or a child, it's if you're just like a working age poor adult who's childless, it's pretty tough to get coverage almost. Mm-hmm. And there must be uh, having to jump through all these hoops, the complexity of our medical system is, uh, is itself probably a social determinant of health, right? It's, it's very daunting to access care. Yeah. Um, navigating the system. Yeah, exactly. If you don't have employer-based healthcare, which is where where our system sort of was based and grew around, yeah. Um, the 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 battle over the Affordable Care Act actually continues to this day somehow. Um, in in Washington, the Democrats are now working to uh, expand that or solidify that Medicaid expansion um, in, in those states that resisted it. Um, what what do you think uh, after after that after the Medicaid expansion? What's the next big healthcare policy challenge in the United States? Well, probably the biggest one has to do with demographics. And so, as the baby boomers are already aging into retirement and will continue to do so, um, the number of <clears throat> beneficiaries or enrollees in Medicare is projected to grow substantially over the next uh, decade. So by 2030, um, we're a little over 60 million Medicare beneficiaries now. It's probably gonna hit 80 million by 2030. And so the the greatest growth is projected in in the next 10 years for Medicare. Um, And so with an aging population, there are kind of unique healthcare needs. Um, And so there are shortages of certain kinds of providers already that will just get worse, like geriatricians, for example. Mm. There's a huge shortage of geriatricians. Geriatricians are really important to serve like a, almost kind of like a primary care role for older adults, um, especially mm-hmm. because they get older and deal with issues of frailty and uh, you know multiple medications and all these kinds of cognitive decline. Um, and geriatricians are not paid well in our health system. And so there's a shortage of geriatricians. Uh, the other, you know, the other big thing is, is going to be demand for long-term care, um, for home-based health care. Most people want to stay in their home as long as possible and be independent as long as possible. Um, and so there's going to be a huge growing demand for providing people care in their homes and then as people are unable to stay in home for long-term care and, you know, long-term care is not covered by Medicare. It is covered by Medicaid. If you have, if you qualify and um, a lot of, you know, it used to be that people would just get rid of their assets and give them to their kids and qualify for Medicaid to get in long-term <laughs> care. Well, states have gotten, you know, smart about that and look at your assets like over the past five years, 10 years, so that's because it'll wipe out your assets immediately, right? Even if you have a pretty good nest egg. Yeah, it's, it's expensive. It's very expensive. 
yeah, I mean, if, if anyone's listening to this, go out and buy long-term care insurance. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's expensive too. And you yeah. have to the fine print and make sure like, is this actually going to provide me the care I need? Um, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's going to be a big issue and it's just going to grow as an issue. And there are, there's no easy way to deal with this. Like other countries are struggling with this too. Um, a colleague of mine just got back from the Netherlands and, you know, they actually like have a value added tax to pay for long-term care. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's a big tax. So you have to think like just to finance the cost of long-term care. I don't know if Americans would be willing to do that. Um, right. Because if it you is go to McDonald's, your, your 15% surcharge goes to yeah. housing, housing the elderly. Right. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. And so that's, that's going to be a big, a big issue is the healthcare that people are going to need as they age. Um, are you looking at countries like Japan that have um, maybe already hit this, uh, this, this boom of, of the elderly and this need for elder care? Yeah. I mean, Japan is one place to look, but there's, you know, culturally, um, you know, in Asian cultures, there's this more this idea of filial piety. And so where you take care of elderly family members, that's Mm -hmm. much more built into the social expectations. And so that doesn't exist as much in, in North America, although we're definitely seeing more and more people caring for aging, aging parents. Um, so probably, you know, other places that are going to deal with this in a similar way would be more the European countries. Um, and yeah, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be an issue so that the government may want to think about things like providing tax benefits to people for provide, like building an apartment on their property. So their elderly parent can stay there because that's probably going to be cheaper than, um, putting them up in a residential resident. I mean, the last thing people want to go to is a residential facility. Um, yeah. And, and as we saw with COVID uh, one, those facilities were, were death traps uh, quite frequently. And, and two, uh, those facilities uh, can't actually maintain a, a stable workforce because they, they pay very low wages. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing. Um, a lot of those facilities, people don't don't talk about this, but this is true in Canada as well, where I have family members pay very low. And so, you know, in, up in Canada, Native Canadians who, who were born there are in the U.S., Native Americans don't want to work at those places. Mm-hmm. And so they're frequently staffed by immigrants who have recently moved to the country there are language barriers and there's high turnover because these are, these jobs are very low paying and unattractive. And so once you can get a better job, you're going to leave, you're going to leave the job. And so there, sure. there is a movement to pay um, direct support workers better. Um, and there's good reason to that. It's, it's not an attractive, it's a hard job and it doesn't pay well. So it's, of course, it's going to be hard to keep people in it. One thing the Affordable Care Act did, uh, the Affordable Care Act set up all these little pilot programs and, and uh, it, it, was, it was really a, a, a laboratory in a lot of ways. Um, but, but one thing it did was to try and incentivize, 
incentivize providers and insurers and other entities to control costs by forming these accountable care organizations, which are evaluated in part by qualitative metrics. And that's really a, a huge shift in focus from the traditional fee-for-service model that, that, uh, that, that we've had here. How's that working out? How's that changing things? Or is it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So the introduction of accountable care organizations in Medicare has been a, a huge transformation in Medicare, in the what would be called the traditional Medicare program. So about a little over 40%, 43% of Medicare beneficiaries get their insurance Medicare through private insurance plans as part of what's called the Medicare Advantage program. But the rest right now, it's about 57% get their insurance directly from CMS, the federal government. Um, and so what the federal government has traditionally done is paid fee for service to physicians and healthcare professionals, um, which means the more of something you bill, the more money you get for it. Um, and there was a lot, a lot of critiques of that system in the 1990s and early 2000s, basically finding that it wasn't very cost efficient and it actually didn't incentivize good quality of care either. Um, the idea of accountable care organizations is to shift some of the financial risk from Medicare, from the government to these provider entities. Um, and so where they're actually at, you know, they're not getting paid a fee for their services. They're actually at risk for a certain proportion of the cost of insuring mm. these beneficiaries. And it, it depends on the model. It's kind of like a sliding scale of accountable care organization models. You can go from something like 30% of sharing in savings to 100% of sharing in savings and losses. Um, so one way of looking at this is shifting risk from the insurer, which in this case is the federal government, to the provider, to the accountable care organization. And these are large organizations um, often run by health systems that involve multiple hospitals, um, primary care and specialist um, physician organizations and group practices. And so they have like really strong management and information infrastructures in order to do what's basically population health. They're, you know, they're taking on a role that's kind of a mix of being a medical provider and a care, a care management company mm. really. Is, is what it is. Um, and how, you know, how big populations are we talking about here? How, how many, how many patients? Definitely in the thousands, um, sometimes over a hundred thousand. Um, I'm the biggest one in the St. Louis area is over a hundred thousand Medicare beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. um, the, other, the other two large ones are in like around 20,000 um, beneficiaries. So, so they're for, able to look at enormous volumes of data and see patterns in patient care, and and that's that's part of part of the uh, part of the design of this, right? Yeah, yeah, it's what it's what they would call population health. What um, managed care companies call population health, so they can track okay, which of these beneficiaries, like track say everyone with diabetes, and identify their risk factors, and then 
their what they would call gaps in care. So you need to get your feet checked, your eyes checked, your cholesterol checked, your blood sugar checked, and then they would flag people who have those gaps in care and reach out to them to get those things done. Um, and part of how they're paid is not just based on shared costs or savings, but also based on quality of care. So they're, that's important to bring up um, because of the concern would be if all the incentives were based on costs, then you're incentivizing them to skimp on quality of care just to provide cheap care. Um, and so and quality of care has never been in the equation in the past, right? No, it, it, it has not been in the equation. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of research in the 90s, early 2000s that came out from, <clears throat> especially the Dartmouth Institute showing a lot of variation geographically, just in, depending on, again, where you lived, geography was kind of destiny, uh, determining how much care you got and the quality of care. Um, and those things aren't always exactly correlated in the way you, you would expect. Um, so that's part of value-based payment um, is for quality to be an, a very important component of this because that's what patients care about. And ultimately, as patients, we're the taxpayers as well. And so the, when you're sick, your number one concern is not get me to the doctor that's going to be the cheapest. It's going to be, get me to the doctor and hospital that's going to provide me the best quality of care. Right. Which sometimes like economists lose sight of, and sometimes, you know, federal government loses sight of and trying to save costs. But ultimately, like, this is all being done for the patient. That's why we have Medicare in the first place, um, is to provide people access to high quality health care and keep them healthy. Mm -hmm. And so and quality care begets quality outcomes and that all probably saves us money down the line. It could, it could save us money down the line. Um, you know, that the, the jury is still out on that. And in, in terms mm -hmm. of the ACOs, the evidence suggests there's been modest savings, like a couple percent. Um, well, at least maintaining quality of care, maybe improving it. At least it's not getting worse and a little bit of money is being saved. Um, that doesn't sound great, but honestly, no. a lot of these programs that they evaluate, they, they don't find savings at all and <laughs> um, don't find quality of care improvements at all. Um, you know, like I started out working in Blue Cross Blue Shield and healthcare. And back then the big thing was disease management. And mm -hmm. that was going to like save a bunch of money and improve everyone's healthcare quality. Um, and the disease management companies sold everyone on it. And then uh, they actually did more, you know, they had methods that showed that they were, that they were saving money, but when they actually, you know, conducted Medicare conducted some more um, rigorous studies, they found it actually saved no money at all and didn't appear to improve people's quality of care at all. Um, so at, le at least we're seeing incremental gains here. Um, at least we're seeing incremental gains here. The other thing I will say is that the policymakers at CMS just announced in October, um, this was actually the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation that started a lot of these um, 
these programs that you were were referring to under the Affordable Care Act, that Mm -hmm. the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation was established under the Affordable Care Act. And so they have set a goal of having 100% of traditional Medicare beneficiaries in ACOs by 2030. Wow. and the, the Congressional Budget Office projects that over 50% of beneficiaries will be in Medicare Advantage by 2030. So between the two, that means the plan is to have every Medicare beneficiary either in a managed care plan, Medicare Advantage, or if they're in traditional Medicare in an ACO. Now, if you're cynical, you could look at that as the government just shifting risk away from itself. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, a a better interpretation might be, well, the federal government's expertise is really not in managing people's care. That's not like its primary role or expertise. So maybe this really is better done by an accountable care organization or by United Healthcare. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But the the idea is is this is not the federal government's area of expertise. There are other entities in our society that have expertise in this. Mm-hmm. they probably hopefully would do a better job. Um, but the government's going to have to regulate that and that's going to cost money administratively. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. so hopefully it improves patient care. It might not save us money, but I, I guess looking for a silver lining on this, uh, if nothing else, the the move towards qualitative metrics in, in healthcare uh, over the last 10 years in the U.S. has, uh, I would say, greatly moved, moved sort of patient-centeredness to the center of the conversation in a way that, that it wasn't. Um, people, are, uh, people in the healthcare industries are much more concerned with um, outcomes and uh, with, with uh, patient, the patient experience and et cetera. Um, and I wonder, um, I wonder what your 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 take on that is. Um, yeah, it, the movement towards patient centeredness. It's interesting. So when they were debating the Affordable Care Act legislation um, back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. You know, there are a lot of these attack ads, like initially the debate was focused a lot on, well, one is expansion of access to care, but a lot of the debate around Medicare component of the Affordable Care Act was focused on cost savings. And this, this thing that they talked about that no one really mentions anymore, it was called the Independent Payment Advisory Commission. And the idea was you were going to have, you're going to appoint a bunch of economists and physicians to this commission who were going to come up with ways of saving money in Medicare. And then in order, it would, if they recommended it and voted on it, it would happen unless Congress voted to override it. And then there were like all these like attack ads coming out. Like this, these are going to be death panels. And like, Oh yeah. Death panels. I remember that. That's, that's where it came that from. Was fun. It, it came from this idea. Um, yeah, that was fun. That, so the one good thing that came out of that whole conversation was like this movement toward this realization that, okay, patient centeredness is important. Like the reason we're in this is, is, is for patients and to improve patients outcomes and address their concerns. And so part of like the affordable care act, the full name is the consumer 
it's like the patient protection and affordable care act. So right. the idea was to bring the patient as a consumer into it. And, you know, the patient centered outcomes research Institute was founded, which puts the patient at the center of outcomes research and the whole, that whole commission idea, basically, basically no one wanted to be appointed to that commission. So it died. <laughs> you think about it, like it was so unpopular. If you're an economist or physician, and the president's like, I'm going to point you to this. You know, like, no, thanks. I don't want to I'm going to put there. you on the death panels panel. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I don't want to be. On that. So that never happened. But we did have so, like the, the PCORI was initially funded. Um, and there was a lot more recognition about, OK, we need to be patient centered because the whole reason Medicare exists is to provide patients access to high quality care. And if it just seems like all we care about is saving money people are going to start like saying we want death panels or something crazy like that mm-hmm. um, and and just to be clear for for anybody who doesn't no remember this panels. there were no death panels it was an entirely fabricated you know kind of a a political yeah it was, it was raw it, yeah it was it was kind of silly it, but the 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 thing that came out of it was a realization that like we have to put patients at the center. Um, otherwise people might, end, you know, are susceptible to believing crazy things. And for mm-hmm. those of us in public health and health policy, it also like these issues of communication, you know, academics don't think very well about that sometimes. And like, it's important to communicate things to people in a way that the average person can understand and doesn't sound like you're talking down to them. And that shows that you actually care about their concerns and are addressing their concerns. Otherwise, people aren't going to aren't going to trust you, and that that's not good for people in public health and health policy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but yeah. Anyway, <laughs> and those are and those are critical parts of of addressing social determinants of health too. Yeah. Um, understanding. Uh, Understanding what what barriers to care patients are facing, um, uh, you know, uh, maybe they can't access a specialist. Uh, maybe they there are there are inadequate or or no health facilities in in their neck of the woods, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and when it and that's where like some of these quality measures measuring like patient satisfaction became even more important. It already existed, like managed care companies. When I was at Blue Cross Blue Shield, we tracked that all the time. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's now tied to providers' payments. You know, hospitals get these quality ratings that are based on sp- specific processes of care, as well as patients' satisfaction with their care. Um, and the same is true for doctors now under... Um, not just under a court accountable care organizations, but if you're a physician in Medicare and have a high enough volume, which is most physicians, um, you have to you have to participate in a value based payment program where your measure your performance is measured on you know mm-hmm. things like did you do depression screening? Um, if you you're treating people with chronic conditions, are you like tracking their medications appropriately um, and helping them manage their medications? Um, and so those, those kind of things are, are important that, you know, the flip side is it creates more administrative complexity in the system. Right. 
gives a competitive advantage if you're a big health system that can track performance measures and game them. Um, so mm-hmm. there's so, always in the details with that. Always. Um, finally, I wanted to ask you uh, to come back to the question of, of social determinants of health. What what role do clinicians and providers and other stakeholders in, in the healthcare uh, landscape, including insurers and drug and device companies, what role do they have in addressing social determinants of health? Should they be advocates? Um, what, uh, what should they be doing? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> so when like, this is a great question as a society, because Doctors in hospitals don't have direct control over most of what we would call the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Um, so think about things like a public education system. Again, that's, I talked about geography in St. Louis, you know, the public schools um, in certain areas of the city inside the city are terrible. I mean, yep, they just are. The graduation rates are terrible. The, the education is terrible. You go to a public school system out in a wealthy suburb and it's night and day. It's, you know, it's very good. And so that's, that's not under the control of doctors and hospitals. That's under the control of local governments um, who are not investing in poor areas in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, Lack of public transit, you know, the local environment that may have health hazards. um, That's an issue in St. Louis as well. Sure. And so, but then doctors have to deal in hospitals and health insurance companies with the downstream health consequences of all that. Um, And so ideally it it would be addressed by state and local government with, you know, funding from the federal government, but because that's not happening, that's putting health providers in the place of having to deal with some of this and they can't control the public schools, but Maybe they can control things like providing people transportation to a doctor's appointment or providing meals um, or providing health services that go out to where people are in their communities and neighborhoods. And so those are ways that healthcare providers are dealing with some of these social determinants of health um, that ideally they wouldn't have to, but because it, it has consequences for their patients or the people they're insuring, um, it puts them in the position of, of having to deal with these things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned schools because I think, you know, you hear much the same thing from teachers and teachers unions of, uh, you know, we, we are being made to assume responsibility for all of these social yeah. uh you know, uh, determinants of uh, educational ability that uh, we, we have no control over. And then you're, you're going you're gonna to downgrade us for our performance based on uh, the, the, the kids who come to school with uh, malnutrition or et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. And, and so in New York, where our, our schools are sort of trying to figure out how do you address that uh, within the school system, but it, it can't, it can't only be on them, right? It's, 
it's on all the institutions in our society, I guess. Yeah, we need to recognize that, you know, people in St. Louis talk about the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. If you have public schools with graduation rates less than 50% staffed by substitute teachers because you can't get teachers to come in there permanently, you know, you shouldn't be surprised that you're going to have other other problems in the city and costing society more in the long run. Anyway, education is not my area of expertise, but there is this similar, you know, relationship between healthcare providers like doctors and hospitals and measuring their performance and social determinants of health and teachers and measuring their performance, right? Um, Mm -hmm. If you're treating patients- both are dealing with the downstream effects of, uh, you know, whether it's systemic discrimination or environmental pollutants or um, what, what, whatever, whatever the the uh, the neighborhood on the wrong side of the tracks may be wrestling with. Yeah, yeah, and that you know the solution to to that is more of something that as a society that we need to address and. Um, and we're a democracy, so it's up to people to yeah. make their voice heard. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, it's uh, becoming clear, I think, that we are all sicker and poorer uh, when, when, we, when we fail to address this through all of our institutions. Yeah, it, it has real, real downstream consequences. Well, Dr. Johnston, um, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating session. Um, at uh, and and uh, I'll do my closing spiel here. Uh, if after listening to this broadcast, you'd like to tune into future conversations in health, follow our LinkedIn page where we'll be posting alerts to episode releases. Um, you can also find us on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Amazon. Once again, thank you, Dr. Johnston, and uh, thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.